time for us to start, so let's pause for prayer and then we'll pick up with where we left off. Now, do you have any notes to follow with? No, we don't. Oh, well, why don't you? Okay. He'll, he'll get them. We've got them in the box. Okay, I didn't know enough to look for them. So we'll go ahead and pause for prayer. And we'll, and get four. Bob will get some notes. Thank you. That way you won't be in the dark. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the provisions we have in Christ. We thank you for the atonement in our place. We pray that as uh, your people, as your Spirit and His indwelling ministry works in us, will increase our desires to understand Your Word, and that we will learn to uh, be precise and interpret it. Help us tonight as we continue to go through the minor prophets, this neglected section of our canon, that we'll see what the message was for Israel, as well as its applicability to us in our era. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think we're supposed to be on Amos this week, is that right? Yeah, I forgot to mark where we left off last week. At page 7. Page 7. Hosea. Okay, so we left off on page 7. Well, no, 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 we, we did Hosea. Are we? Oh, we're part of it, aren't we? Oh, page 9. Okay, page 9. Okay, so... Did, now, we did go through the message of the book, and I did explain about the day of the Lord, that eschatological time period. Okay, well, in Amos, we'll see tonight that the day of the Lord is not always in the future. I mean, it's future from when the Israelites were, but it's not always in that eschatological period. So, uh, I think we should be starting then, if I went through the message, and I thought I did, we should pick up with Amos. So this will be page 10. name became the title of this work. Not much is known about Amos outside of what we know from his prophetic, this prophetic work. Since no genealogy is given for him, this suggests that he was from a poor domestic background. We, don't know, we do not know his age when he carried, out, carried on his prophetic ministry or his age of death. According to Amos 1.1, we are told that he is a shepherd from Tekoa. This is a village that's 10 miles south of Jerusalem in Judah. Amos may have been raised in Tekoa where he learned how to tend sheep and be a breeder of livestock. While performing his responsibility as a shepherd, the Lord called him to be a prophet. So let's just look at those two verses here. Amos 7, 
14 to 25, from, I should say 14 to 25, 14 to 15. Hello. No stickers tonight could be as late, right? No stickers tonight. <laughs> uh, we're just glad you're here. Better late than never. Oh, that's no problem. You know, <laughs> hey, I'm just a guest here. <laughs> Y'all can do whatever you want. Welcome. <laughs> the only thing I can care about is staying on the right side of your pastor. <laughs> I think we've been having some lunch together for probably close to 20 years, once a week. So, I know him very well. Heck, if you ever want any secrets, I've got a few. Do we have to pay for <laughs> I would think I could charge a good price on this. <laughs> but see, you don't want to do that because he's also got secrets on me. And that could be bad because if my wife ever found out, I'd be dead meat. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I always make it a point. Uh, if I make a joke about my wife, I always put her in a positive light. That's how you maintain your marriage for 40 years. You put her in a bad light too much, and she'll shoot you. And you make it <laughs> so anyway, let's look at this Amos 7, 14 to 15. We're on page 10, and we're looking at title and authorship. Verse 14, this is, this is where uh, God's speaking. If we should pick up with verse 10, Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent a message to Jeroboam the king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. So, so notice here, Amaziah is a false priest. He's opposed to Amos. He's saying bad things about him. And so what does the president do? I mean, what does the... What can I say? <laughs> it's providential. <laughs> But uh, here, when Amaziah sends this to Jeroboam the king, Jeroboam's looking for ways to get even with him. Now here we can see, this is what Amos is saying. This is Amaziah. Jeroboam will die by the sword. That's his prophecy. The king's going to die by the sword. Secondly, and Israel will surely go into exile. And expands on that thirdly away from their native land. Well, these are all negative things. So then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you spear. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel. It's a pagan place of worship. Because this is the king's sanctuary, the pagan king's sanctuary, the idolater Jeroboam, and the temple of the kingdom. Now notice Amos' response. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd, 
and also took care of the sycamore fig trees. In other words, he's basically a farmer. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And then he goes on to say, Here's the word of the Lord. And uh, he is very graphic here on what's going to happen to Jeroboam and his kingdom. Well, that's when you can tell somebody's really called. They've got, they've got the heat from their administration. They're going to threaten them with death. But he's compelled to speak boldly in the name of the Lord. And he says here, now this is what God did. He took me from falling, tending the flock. And he told me to go prophesy. Now, I did delineate a couple weeks ago. Don't be deceived into thinking that God directly calls any preacher today. I hear this on TV. I'll tell you where I think it's common. And just think south. Because God does not directly speak to anybody today. The Holy Spirit, when we're converted, he regenerates, the, he regenerates the sinner, and as a result, they repent and believe. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and he changes our desires. We grow in grace, and the primary thing as believers we're looking for is right doctrine and the fruit of the Spirit. I understand that pastors, in some sense, are set apart. God gives them a desire in their sanctification and spiritual gifts. But that's not the same thing as saying the Lord spoke to me. And I think I pointed out to you, uh, when Dr. McKean was still here, we were at an ordination council, and uh, the, uh, the candidate, he was a graduate of the seminary, and he's explaining this subjective, objective thing to the so-called call. And these pastors were not pleased. And so they went through a little round with him, and this one pastor says, Brother, the Holy Spirit speak to you, or did he not? And Dr. McCune says, You know, my calling was like his. And I said, Yep, mine was not a one-night stand. <laughs> and that's when the guy said, well, I either spoke to you or did not. Well, they really went after him. But I think because McCune and I said something, they backed off pretty quick. And that, that pastor really ended up looking pretty bad. He brought it up again when we were in council. But it was really what he forgot to directly say something to him. Friends, that's a heresy. God only speaks to his word. I'm not looking for any voices. Uh, why do people go to the mission field? Well, I think it's part of their spiritual growth. I think there's certain aptitudes. And in their sanctification, they look like this is a place they can match. I know Rob Howell, that was the case with him. So he never heard a direct voice. But in God's providence and his spiritual growth, some of his mission trips to Africa, God did use that to direct him to ministry in Tanzania. And obviously it was not 
permanent because he's in China now. So, to me, that's how God works. That's more about what I'd say a biblical sense view, since we know that prophecies have ceased. Uh, sometimes I think the weak underbelly of some of our Catholic churches is that we have the Spirit actively speaking, telling someone to go somewhere. Friends, that happened to me a couple times. I ate a pizza before I went to bed with uh, hot peppers, Italian sausage. I had two great visions. <laughs> However, I could not sleep that night. Well, when you had that type of experience, how could you sleep? <laughs> so, in any event, I just say that to clarify that because you do hear, you'll hear some TV people say that. And they're wrong. That's why when I watch TV, I don't watch televangelists. You know, I either watch ESPN, Fox News, or my wife's real big into the Hallmark Channel. Those are the three stations. <laughs> so, I'm not watching Trinity Broadcasting unless I know somebody that's going to do something that I hear is crazy. And I want to take notes about the craziness. So TV is really for information, the news, sports, and the Hallmark Channel. So, anyway, what can I say? So we're better off, I think, sometimes with the other TV. It's too late in life. And I do remember, sometimes when you don't have a TV, I have heard pastors mispronouncing things that if they're watching the news, they wouldn't be mispronouncing it. So at least it's good for that type of thing. So anyway, as long as you all don't have that type of calling and Pastor Ken does not, we're okay. And I know he does not. Okay, that's the title and authorship. In Amos' case, God did speak to him. And he made it, what he was to do, clear to him. Look at the date and the setting. In light of Amos 1.1, we can see specific information. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. So we've got two kings, one in the south, one in the north. So it's very specific. By the way, there's ideas about when that earthquake was, but nobody has a definitive action or a definitive comment on it. So we don't know. But it was obviously something that was well known to them. That's why Amos mentions it. Uh, you know, I can remember when we first came up here. There was some type of earthquake in Lake Erie. I can remember being in my office seeing things shake. This is back around 1984, 1985. And when I see books moving on my desk, and I call my wife at home who's with the kids and said that uh, uh, some items on our table, they were moving. Yeah, I said to myself, I bet you there's an earthquake somewhere around here. I thank God that I didn't live in California. Because <laughs> that's not very common for us. But that's a place where it is common. So anyway, I guess they get used to it. That was enough for me. So 
I'm a Midwesterner. I like climate changes. I like the lack of uh, extreme type of earthquakes and stuff like this. So we live in a more severe climate in many ways. But if you go to Florida, you go to California, you do have a more severe climate. So, you know, you kind of pick your poison. Here's the monotony of the seasons, which, you know, I do like, and my wife loves them. So we like it. But I've got two sons to tell. One lives in Atlanta, and one lives in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, they, they like not seeing snow. And as my youngest son Joshua says, when we do get snow here in Atlanta, everything's going to be shut down. So, anyway, he likes the climate, but I still like this area. So, anyway, this is something that you remember. I, like, I remember that earthquake. It's something that's vivid in my mind and all the faculty I work with because the older faculty at Detroit Baptist Seminary, we've been together since. 1984 was when Dr. Compton came. Dr. Priest came a few years later. And the difference between our school and many other schools is the faculty state. And they actually like each other. That's unique in seminaries. <laughs> so anyway, it's something that we all recall. And I use that analogy to say that's the same way with this earthquake. We don't know when it was, but they remember it. So that helps us here. Uh, here, if you'll notice, let's drop down to uh, the second paragraph. The background for the prophecy of Amos. This is the last four lines. The background for the prophecy of Amos is founded in the long oppression of Israel and Judah by Assyria. As early as the ninth century, Shalmaneser III had exacted tribute from Jehu. The Assyrians would continue to oppress Israel for 30 to 40 years after the composition of Amos' book until they destroyed Israel in 722 B.C. So this book is really, like I said, as I say at the end of my first paragraph, it's probably around 760 B.C. So 40 years later, that northern kingdom is going to fall. It will exist no more as such. So he's prophesying at a time when these are happening. So that's a little bit about the date and setting. Let's move on to the message. Notice the message here. The sovereign ruler of the universe, the Lord, will judge the rebellious nations. In particular, the Lord will judge Israel for disobeying the Lord's covenant. However, all is not lost for Israel became the covenant because the covenant-keeping God will restore his nation in the land under the direction of a renewed Davidic dynasty, which will happen in the millennium. So that's the message. Let me comment on a few items here. Go back to the previous page. Notice I said here, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Notice some things that are said here about the sovereign ruler of the universe. 
in chapter 5, verse 8, God says he created the stars. Can you imagine that? Evolutionists want to have it with the Big Bang. But God says, nay, nay, I created the stars. You read Genesis 1, it's very clear on day 4. He created the sun, moon, and stars. According to evolutionists, that's not true. And by the way, people in the ancient Near East, they worship the sun. They thought the sun came first. But when God created, he created the heavens empty and the earth unformed and unfilled. It's just a watery mass. From that, he will shape at least one continent on day three. But there's some type of light source set up on day one. Uh, that's what's helping to modulate the day and the night. Day four, that's replaced. Maybe replaced is not the right ter term. Because this could just be energy. But the sun's set up for the day-night cycle. But that's not till day four. Four days after what the ancient Near Eastern people were saying. Because they had the sun first. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Well, the Bible's got it completely reversed. And the Bible's right. So he's the sovereign ruler of the universe that includes the stars. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. It also includes the mountains. He who formed the mountains creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to man, that is, he gives a special revelation. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty, Almighty, sovereign power, is his name. So he creates the mountains. In chapter 4, earlier, he also says he, he controls the rain, the wind. Look at chapter 9, verses 2 through 4. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, maybe even send a ship into outer space to contemporize it a little bit. From there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. His point is, I've got control over all these areas. And I can have serpents kill them. Let me press upon you. When we say God's sovereign, that means he's control of everything. That means he controls the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for those who we can call good in the sense that they're in Christ, he's working to glorify himself, but he's also working to conform us more to the image of Christ. That should be our goal in life. 
Uh, I can tell some of you are like me, you're advancing in age. Things change. You know, it's just the nature of getting older. Uh, life's changed for my wife. She gets sick a lot more these days. Life's changed for me. I live in what I call a post-prostate world. And so, I don't think that's the same as post-apocalyptic golf. <laughs> but things happen as you get older. I'm more sickly. The men I work with get sick a little more easily. We've got back pains. But we still love our jobs, both teaching the Word of God. But friends, God's got control over all that. And I think I might have mentioned to you, Hey, my doctor called me to tell me I had prostate cancer. It was 12.30, about a half hour after church. He's supposed to call me on Monday. So when my cell phone rings and I see his number, I knew I had cancer. And when he told me I had five cancer spots, you know, the first two things I thought to myself, God has ordained this. Can't turn away from it. Further, he's ordained this in order to help me become more like Jesus. <clears throat> Friends, if we keep that in perspective, aging is great, but you got to keep those in perspective. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't have more aches and pains. My eyesight's going. I even have trouble with my trifocals now. It used to be I could take my glasses off and read my Bible. I can't do that anymore. Whenever I'm up, I have to have my glasses on. That's a change over two years ago. Well, we see that. Now, some things are more catastrophic. But God's in control of that. Uh, you know, we've had parents die, and my wife's parents are pretty old. My father-in-law's, he's been dying for three, for three years. He's like the Energizer Bunny. He keeps on going up. He's in pain all day. Has to be in a has to use a walker and he can't move around that much. He's in a wheelchair. But this is what God ordained. I mean we pray that the Lord takes him home. He's in a lot of pain, but God hasn't shown us to do that yet. Well, we're committed to the absolute sovereignty of God. And because of that, that shapes our worldview. And so that's why I encourage you. You all need to embrace that. That will be your hope in the good times and in the bad times. In fact, in the good times, we always ought to tell ourselves, there's going to be bad times. It's the nature of life. So we want to face this with a Christian worldview. And a Christian worldview has God as the absolute sovereign. And there are no pretenders. So that's what I mean. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's got the whole world in his hand. Further notice, the Lord will judge the rebellious nations. In particular, the Lord will judge Israel. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. They rush upon the city. Oops, I'm sorry, I dropped down. Two, two nine, two six. At the sight of them, 
nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. Now, in this context, beginning with beginning of chapter two, he's talking about Israel. Notice here in two six, at the sight of the locusts, nations are in anguish. This severe locust plague, every face turns pale. Well, that's his judgment on Israel. There are other passages, but we need to develop the message a little bit further. However, this judgment is because of Israel's disobedience to the Lord's covenant. However, all is not lost for Israel because the covenant-keeping God will restore his nation in the land under the direction of a renewed Davidic dynasty. Look at the very end of Amos. Amos chapter 9. <coughs> verses 11 to 15. This section looks far beyond the day of Amos. He says in verse 11, in that day, now notice in the context, verse 9 he says, I will give the command that I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations. Sounds like their dispersion. As grain is shaken in the sea, then not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. That's for the covenant disobedience. Uh, all those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. So Israel is going to go through hard times until God regenerates the nation at the end of the tribulation. So when people ask me, you know, it looks like the Lord's going to return and Israel's in the land, I always say, don't hold your breath on that one. That may be the case. It may not be the case. Uh, let's send more money to Israel. And by the way, Israel has been our ally. And we should honor all our alliances with foreign nations according to what what were the demands? That should not change from one administration to another if we have ethics. And that's part of the problem. So I do think we will be judged for those types of things. At least the nation, or at least the leaders of the nation. Believers will not be there at that judgment. They will be at the Bema earlier, and God will welcome us into his presence. But that's not going to be the case. Israel's going to go through the tribulation. They will suffer. But then God's going to give them a new heart. And that will be when he ushers in the millennial kingdom. And then after that, there's the eternal state. Woe be to those nations who had alliances with Israel and changed on them. Same thing with alliances with any other nation. To change our obligations unless they've done something to provoke that is unethical and it's ungodly. But I think the ungodliness of our nation is already given. You know, that I have more hope for Sodom and Gomorrah than I do for the United States of America. What we're promoting, it's an abomination to God. 
what we're doing with the portions. That's an egregious sin against God Almighty. Thou shalt not commit murder. If you ever get a chance to look at Detroit Seminary's blog, I have two posts on abortion recently. I've written things about it before, so this is a condensation of that. But nevertheless, it is America's violation of thou shalt not murder. Woe be to those who push abortion. It's terrible. And what about homosexual marriages? Friends, that's coming. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroyed it with fire. Now, our judgment may not be immediate, but it will come. I'm 63. I'd like to think I will make it. You know, time's running out for me. But it could not, it might not. Uh, you look at all the factions. You look at the uprising of Muslims. Do we really feel safe and secure? Boy, I don't. And if you do, you're living in a fool's paradise. Remember 9-11. And who couldn't figure out on the last 9-11 that that wasn't terrorism? The symbolism was so strong. I picked up on that right away. Is this an accident? Absolutely not. This was planned to communicate a message. So as the first 9-11 taught us, we're not immune. And there are cell groups all throughout the United States. And they're growing like, like wildfire. So we'll eventually be like Great Britain and France. And we will have riots. It's just a matter of time. Uh, I hate to predict it. I'm not prophesying. I'm praying that there's some type of revival. And that's for stalled. But friends, go to London. Go to Paris. Go to Israel. That's an ever-present danger. When we're in Israel in 2000, we're on a bus, and because of a bomb scare, they have the best, best military for avoiding the bomb threats. We sat on a highway for about two hours until they could locate whether that was real or not. Well, in Israel, they're prepared for it. We're, we're a bunch of naive people, and we're not prepared for it. So we will have another disaster. I mean, I think it's just a matter of time. So those things scare me. What scares me are my children and grandchildren. You know, you know I have concern for my son, Bob. Because of where he is, those types of things, he will be on the front lines. He's in a gang squad. Uh, that's reality. But that's what he wants to do, and he's there because he's a minister of God. And, you know, when you get a church after seminary, I was surprised he wanted to be a cop. <laughs> I didn't raise him that way. But, you know, choices we made when he was younger to let him be in a karate program when he was in ninth grade. And, he continued at that and did pretty well. And when you're fighting with cops, 
or in your dojo or whatever they call it. I should have figured that was always a possibility. But I was dumb and naive like a typical parent. You want your kid to do well at something and he did well at it. Uh, I just did not realize where the outcome would go. I raised him to be a preacher. Now, he does preach on, at the police force, though. But nevertheless, where is my wife and I? I mean, in a Christian sense of worry, not a, not a wicked sense. <laughs> no, it concerns us. We're not worried. But those are the dangers. And he's been in some very hostile situations. But this has grown and grown in our country. So the types of things that Israel went through, we are not God's covenant people. God will progressively work in temporal judgment until one will become more serious. I just don't see how we can get away with allowing all these abortions, the homosexual unions, and whatever else in place is out there go on. It's, it's, it just baffles me. Forty years ago, we would never be talking about the homosexual unions. So times have changed. But God can judge us just like Israel. Israel had one thing that we don't have. They were God's covenant people. And he promised to restore them in the end. We don't have that promise. But thank God if you're a Christian. You do have other promises. But for our nation as a whole, there is no hope. Uh, so we just need to pray. Maybe God will be gracious and send a revival. That would be great and wonderful. But you can't predict the revival. It's a work of God. So we just have to be faithful. But anyway, I wanted to draw some comparisons, lively comparisons with our day. Because this issue of violating covenants, we do that left and right. And like I said, we're not his covenant nation. Well, that's, that's the message. But let me go on and finish out here with verse 11. In that day, in that future day, I will restore David's fallen tent. Remember the Davidic line? Christ was the last Davidic. He did not take up his earthly throne. Christ will be the restoration of that fallen tent. God says, I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. Notice verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Notice verse 14. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, 
says the Lord your God. Now notice here. Can Israel still be exiled again? Absolutely. At this point, we can see all the Middle East is against them. So I think that's a possibility. It may not be the case. Maybe the end sooner than what we think. The return of the Lord, we're not looking for any signs it's imminent. But nevertheless, things could be set up and he could return. But it's not because it's been set up. That's because God chose them. So they could be dispersed and God brings them back again. Most prophecy preachers assume that. I've never assumed it because I'm not a prophecy preacher. I'm not trying to capitalize on the sensational. I can turn on a Christian television station to get the sensational. So it's possible that's not going to be the case. But it's possible it is also. We have to rightly live before God right now. If you want to do God's will, do it every day with your obedience, your faith. And that's what God expects from us. But as far as the future concerns, I can bet my money that Israel will back. And they will be, Jerusalem will be capital of the world. And the one great thing about a dictatorship, when you have the God-man, it's perfect. Today you can't have that. There will always be abuses. That's one of the great things about democracy is the check and balance between the three departments in the United States. I mean, that, that used to be true. I don't know that that's necessarily true today. But it was ideally set up to do that. And the reason was was to protect from dictatorships. Well, hopefully we won't lose that. But nevertheless, that's why I think that democracy is really the best government. As long as you have the check and balance system in play. Um, but we can see that can fall apart. What's the best rule? That's a dictator who's absolutely perfect. When he judges a sinner, it will be right. And it will be swift. And things will get done. It will not be bogged down because of Congress. When King Jesus speaks, everybody will listen. But we're not there yet. So, you know, we hope for, you know, I think democracy is a pure democracy, or I should say a republic. It's the best form of government, as long as you have the check and balance. Anyway, but I'm looking forward to the day when we have the dictator myself. Okay, well, that's Amos. Now, there any questions on that? Well, let's look at Obadiah. This is a very short book. In fact, so short, there is no Obadiah chapter 1. It's just Obadiah. 21 verses. And that's all there is to it. By the way, the Hebrew here is pretty hard. So if guys are in Hebrew class and they want to read Obadiah because it's so short, they better guess again. They're better off to read Jonah. It's much easier Hebrew. <laughs> so, this has got some difficulties, but let's take a look at some of the details here. Notice the title and authorship. The author of this book is Obadiah. His name means servant of, of Yahweh, the Lord, or worshiper of Yahweh, 
the Lord. By the way, this is an expression of his parents' faith. Unless he's changed his name later in life. And that could happen. But, in all likelihood, it may reflect that he had believing parents. So, we know very little about the author of the book, though there are about a dozen Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. Because of the difficulty in linking this Obadiah with any of the other Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament, there are different interpretations about the precise identification of her author. I'm not going to go out on a limb on that, but I think he's one of the earlier ones. Look at the date and setting. Obadiah 10 to 14 describes an attack on Jerusalem that included Edomite involvement. The Old Testament describes seven different attacks on Jerusalem. The second attack on King Jehoram appears to best fit the description of Obadiah 10 to 14. That's why I dated at 845 BC. Now notice, I said he seems to best fit. The verb seems is operative there. There are others who don't take that view. So this is my inclination, but a lot of people disagree with me. So understand, it's interpretive. This is the way I interpret it. But I can give you the name of a number of conservative evangelical books that date a little bit later. So that's the way I lean. So I would put this as the earliest of the minor prophets at 845 B.C. Let's look at the message here. I have two sentences. Obadiah announces the certain judgment on Edom and the deliverance of Israel. The immediate judgment on Edom is only a precursor for the coming day of judgment that Edom and all nations will face in the day of the Lord. Let's look at four items in my summary message. Notice this is a certain judgment. Look at verses 1 and 2. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Now notice here, that guarantees this is going to happen. Uh, notice furthermore, secondly, it's on Edom. Look at verses 10 to 12. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So notice, this is about Jerusalem. Uh, Edom, Esau, he's brother to Jacob. That's what he refers to when he talks about his brother. Uh, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune. Nor rejoice over the people of Judah. 
in the day of their destruction, nor boast, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Um, so, so notice, this is against Edom. Notice furthermore, this is the immediate judgment on Edom. Look at verses 6 and 7. But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. But you will not detect them. I was talking about Edom, who isn't who is an uh, enemy of Israel because of their close connections. God's going to take care of them. There's going to be a judgment on Edom. But we need to understand in Obadiah, though, that judgment that would happen shortly after Obadiah predicted that, that's a precursor. That's a forewarning of a future judgment. Look at verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. In particular, notice this is in the day of the Lord. By the way, it's near in the sense that prophecies are being made. <coughs> Now, I did not look at uh, uh, Amos, where in chapter 6, the last part of it, it looks like that's something that was near to that day. So it wasn't eschatological. This is eschatological because of the nature that's far beyond any other prophecy. And so it's what we call eschatological, it's a prophecy. This is what will happen in the future day of the Lord that we looked at last week. It is a time of judgment. It includes restoration, but it is a time of judgment. And it will be a, a judgment like we have not seen. So that would be for the future for Obadiah. Uh, so that's basically the message now, do you have any questions on that? <coughs> well, that's good. Well, we're going to move on to Jonah, and you probably will have questions. Uh, one of the most interesting books of the Old Testament. Always the type of prophet I can identify <coughs> with. He was not a good example of a prophet. He had some real areas of disobedience. God gave him a message. And he went to Nineveh kicking and screaming. The other thing you'll be surprised by is I don't think there was a great uh, evangelistic campaign in, in, in Jonah 3. I will explain to you. We won't get to develop it tonight. Why I don't think that was a great evangelistic campaign. So usually everybody, when they initially hear me, they're always shocked by that. However, when Pastor Gorn went through minor prophets a number of years back. Uh, 
He preached essentially, and he packaged it in his own. But he didn't preach about that great evangelistic campaign. There's a reason why. I had him in classes. His first year in seminary was my first year in seminary. <coughs> so you don't typically hear our graduates preaching that. Because there's good reasons why that's not the case. Unfortunately, we won't get to hear all that tonight. Pastor Weaver, I'm sorry. I would love to, for you to have heard it. But I think your son uh, can tell you pretty well. I have his notes. Okay. If that theme I want to preach it to you. I think I heard your seminar. Okay, okay. This goes years back at an MACP. Yes, you're exactly right. you got a good memory. Well, that's because of shocking. <laughs> anyway, well, let's look at the title of authorship here. Like the previous minor prophet examined, the title of the book is derived from the name of the author, Jonah. His name means dove. It sounds like a peaceful bird. Now, we're not sure of all the ins and outs of why his parents named him that. It's probably like my son Bob. He's named Robert because I'm Robert. I'm named after my dad. So he's Robert Vance McCabe III. I'm Robert Vance McCabe Jr. And our line will stop with him because they've only had girls. And his wife, she was beat up pretty bad the last time and had to have surgery. So I think the line's going to stop. Well, that's not what I was praying for. Obviously, God had other plans. My mother raised me that this was an admirable, admirable name, and I could go through a litany of it. I've got books that relate to Robert Pence and the McCabe's. And so that was drilled in my head since I was a kid. I drilled it in my son's head. He knows what. But you know, I'm still not sure what Robert means. I hope it's a good name. <laughs> so my parents, that wasn't even the issue. It was a line of names. That very well may be the case here, too, as well. We don't always pick our names because of the biblical sense. You know, I've got four granddaughters. Brianna, a little different name. That's Amy and Mark's daughter. My son, Bob, his oldest daughter, oldest daughter is Mary. His next daughter is Peyton. And by the way, P-E-Y-T-O-N with the football player, that's spelled like a girl's spelling. Because... My granddaughters got it right, and they checked it out. <laughs> they just don't have the nerve to write to Peyton Manning and tell him he's got a girl spelling, <laughs> and I wouldn't either. But there's probably some type of tradition there. And then the youngest one is Bailey. Why well, couldn't have been a Jane, a Linda, a Sue, Kathy? None of them have what I call normal names. What? It's part of the generation they live in. So why names go into certain things, we just don't know, and it really doesn't matter. The fact that his name means dove has something to do with, with the book. Jonah is not a dove. He really is hoping for destruction of Nineveh. So he definitely was not a peacenik. So that's a little bit about his name. Also, we should notice... He's mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. In light of the passage in this, of this passage in Kings, Jonah carried on his prophetic ministry in the 8th century. 
Uh, he's also from Gas Heifer, a town located in Zebulon, in Lower Galilee. And that's in the Northern Kingdom. According to the passage in Kings, he prophesied under Jeroboam II between 793 to 753 B.C. So let's look at the, the date. This has got to be somewhere between 793 and 753 B.C. Since Jonah carried on his ministry in the early part of the 8th century B.C., his book, most think, was written around 780 B.C. Like his fellow prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, and Amos, Jonah carried on his prophetic ministry during the 8th century B.C. Uh, during the 8th century, both Israel and Judah had risen to tremendous economic heights and extended their borders so that their combined territory was equivalent to what was during the reign of David and Solomon. Lord David and Solomon, that's the largest that uh, the kingdom of Israel was as a united nation. In these days, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, combined, they have the same amount of territory, but they're divided kingdoms. So that is a significant difference. Also at this point, the Assyrian nation was in a weakened state during this period of time. Okay, well, we're, I think, out of time here. It'll take me a little while to develop the message. So, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, you'll be back next week. It, you probably will have questions. It, this is one of the books I put my heart and soul into. I just always wonder, when it's, even when I was in my younger days in seminary, I hear all these preachers saying this was the greatest evangelistic campaign. And I'm thinking to myself, what happened to Pentecost? Well, I think those were pretty profound thoughts when I was in my mid-twenties. So, anyway, we'll see you next week. Anyway, thanks for being here.